through 8. What feast took place, John, 7 through 8? Feast of booze. Right now is Sukkot. Uh, you could look, I saw uh, the Feast of Booze, Feast of Tabernacles. Saw a news article yesterday uh, showing the Jewish uh, celebrations. And interestingly, tomorrow is the last day of the Feast of Sukkot, which, our text this morning, is the last day of the Feast of Booze. So kind of interesting timing, uh, how it all worked out here. Um, but this morning we come to the end of John chapter 8. Um, and like I said, it, it is uh, a long section beginning in John 7, the Feast of Booze, extending all the way to the end of John 8. And Jesus has been in sort of this dialogue with um, the same crowd ever since the beginning of chapter 8, on this last day of the feast, and, uh, and it extends all the way through the end of the chapter. Um, we've organized this, uh, these lessons in chapter 8 around these statements that, that Christ makes, um, these just bold, glorious statements. I'm the light of the world. It says, first, um, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You are of your father, the devil. So they're just powerful, grand statements that he makes. This morning, we come to the last section here in verses here, i got to turn that on. That would help. There we go. Verse 48 through 59, and I've entitled it two manifestations of the supremacy of Christ and his word, which delivers from death. If chapter 8 has been like climbing a mountain, then this morning we've reached the summit, the mountain peak. This is what it's all leading up to. Culminates with probably one of the most grand and glorious declarations of Christ, um, and also with the crowd responding, um, attempting to stone him to death. So this passage begins in verses 48 to 51, with the supremacy of Christ's word, exclusive means of deliverance from death. So you remember what is what has just taken place. Who, who remembers? Who can sort of summarize where we were last week? Jesus accused them, said, you are of your father, the, the devil. What were some of the main points we made from that? Did Jesus say that if they were like Abraham's sons, they would love him? They yeah. would accept him as the Messiah, but they're that's right. So they're not truly Abraham's. That's right. That's right. He sort of zooms into their spiritual DNA. He says, I know you're children of Abraham, but physical lineage, having the DNA of Abraham physically, means nothing in the kingdom of God. It's his spiritual DNA that matters. Um, he even goes on to say, you're, You have the devil's DNA. Uh, if you had God's DNA, spiritually speaking, you would love me uh, because I am the Son of God. I fully reveal him. So these are pretty controversial things to say to uh, religious Jews. And so they respond to him in verse 48 um, with slander of his identity. Look what it says. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's the second time they call him demon-possessed. They conclude that such talk, which accused them of being from the devil, could only be attributed to someone demon-possessed. 
They also call him a Samaritan. You remember chapter 4, the Jews didn't really get along well with Samaritans. Um, this is a racial slur, a derogatory name. They looked at Samaritans as half-breeds, um, people who weren't fully Jewish. They had their own false religious system. They had their own version of the Old Testament scriptures. But the Samaritans turned it right back around on the Jews. They said the same thing about Jews. Hey, you're not real children of Abraham. We are. So the Jews here are accusing Jesus of, you sound just like a Samaritan. You're siding with the idolatrous, despicable, half-breed Samaritans. And so that's why they, they call him this. Are we not right in saying you're a, you have a demon and are a Samaritan? And what's so amazing is despite this mockery and opposition to him, Jesus continues to respond with grace. He graciously confronts them boldly by exposing their condition. He graciously points them back to himself, continues to point them back to himself as their only hope. That brings us to verses 49 to 51. He defends his identity. Again, he doesn't have to do this. He's been talking with them since the beginning of chapter 8. He's continually mocked, continually slandered. He's so patient, gracious. And yet his patience is mixed with an intensity and intensifying of his claims. But one thing he is not doing, he is not trying to seek and preserve his own reputation. That's not what he's after. It's not why he's about to say what he does. He's not interested in that. In fact, he is the God-honoring son. Look what it says, verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So he says, I, I, I don't have a demon. On the contrary, the very opposite of that, the drive of my life is honoring the Father. And we've already seen this all through John. He honors the Father by speaking all of the words of the Father that the Father gave him and doing all the works the Father gave him to do. That's the only thing that mattered to Christ. That's why he does and says what he does. It has nothing to do with people receiving him or not. The implications of this is that if he so honors his father, then when people dishonor him, who are they dishonoring? They're dishonoring his father. Again, we've seen this all through John, this inseparable link between Christ and the father. What you do with him is what you do with the father. Chapter 5, verse 23 says that very thing. But not only does his life's aim aim at honoring the Father, but he's also not driven by a desire for his own glory. Look at verse 50. He says, yet I am not seeking my own glory. So he's about to make a couple astonishing claims, and he's saying this here so that we know that when he does, it's not self-promotion. It's not why he's saying it. The main goal of his ministry is glory in the Father. That doesn't mean he doesn't have glory. Look at the rest of the verse. There is one who seeks it. While Christ is not after his glory, the Father is after the Son's glory. If we had time, I was tempted when I was uh, putting the lesson together, we could stop here and say a lot 
on this intra-Trinitarian relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This mutual delight, mutual honor, harmony between Father and Son and Spirit. I just want to point out one thing that Jesus says. This is really amazing. He says, there is one, by the Father, who seeks my glory. Look down at verse 54. It says the same thing again. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, who is his Father? He is our God. It's the God that the Jews worship, that is Christ's Father, and he glorifies the Son. Now, why is that so significant? So significant? Because by claiming that, he is making another claim of deity. Listen to these verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, and that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And here the Father is giving glory to his Son. That's an astounding claim to deity. The Father is zealously after the glorification of Christ. And if Christ were not fully, truly God, then God the Father would be an idolater. And he's not. Not only is the Father after the Son's glory, he's also the one who judges. Look at the end of verse 50. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I think the point simply there is that it's the Father who's the final evaluator of the Son's testimony, of his truthfulness and claims. No person. It's the Father's opinion that counts. It's his judgment that matters. He's the one that decides the truth of Christ's claims. So Christ is content to rest with the Father. How people responded and gave him glory or not was not concerning to him. It's a good model for us in ministry and us as we share the gospel. That now brings us to this incredible statement in verse 51. Where he tells us that his word eternally delivers believers from death. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He's saying this not for his glory. Why is he saying this? Why does he bring this up here? It's sort of out of the blue, right? Just all of a sudden you get a truly, truly. Pay attention. Listen to this. Why does he say this? It's for their salvation. Even after insult upon insult, he still keeps bringing them back to this one thing. Salvation from sin and judgment. Over and over he keeps pointing them back to himself. We've seen that all through this passage. So I just want to park on this verse for a minute. And meditate on it with you. It's the first of these two mountain peaks in this passage. What does he mean by my word? We've already seen it several times again in this chapter. Uh, my word, what does that mean? You tell me. I 
Kent, verse 31. Yes. Oh, I was going to say all of his teaching. Excellent. Yep. Good. Notice it's not my words, plural, but my word. The idea is the sum total of my teaching. Everything that I've declared to be true. What, uh, what does that include? Think John. Think this chapter especially, but what, what's summed up in that? His word. Yes? That includes like his deity. Well. <laughs> yeah, I think absolutely. Yeah, he said it several times in the chapter he's about to. You have to receive Christ for who he says that he is. He can't just be a Jesus that you make him to be. It has to be in accord with his word, right? Yeah. Good. So who his person is? What else? What else does his word include? The way to salvation. Sorry? The way to salvation. Way of salvation. Faith alone. Repentance. Yes. Good. Not being a son of Abraham. Yeah, that's right. The insufficiency of physical um, lineage and these superficial factors that the Jews are coming to. Um, the need for a transformed nature, the need for a decisive cleansing from your sin. That's right. Anything else? I mean, he has said he's the Son of God yeah. multiple times already. Mm -hmm. and if you believe that, that will say. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Amen. Yep, so he's the Son of God, including absolute deity and also his person as the son the unique yeah. son of the, the father sent by the father equal with the father and yet accomplishing the father's plans that's right any other things it's good what about his commandments okay can I be included in other words you cannot separate the teaching of Christ from the person of Christ there's an inseparable link his word is a unified whole. You can't just say, I can I want to pick and choose, or I like all of this except this. It's my word. It's a unified whole. To throw away one piece is to throw away all of it. That's what his word means. What about keep? He says, if anyone should keep my word. The word keep means to guard or watch over or observe something. It's synonymous with abiding in his word. Look back at verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, if you abide, persevere, remain, submit, depend upon my word, you're truly my disciples. Synonymous with that. It means true faith and what he's declared to be true. Not only a profession of assent, but trust in his word and a response of obedience. So I'm not going to take you back there. We've already gone there several times, but John 14. If you, what my commandments? If you keep my commandments, right? That's the one who loves me. He keeps it. He observes it. He watches over it. This expression is also rooted in the Old Testament way of talking about the scriptures. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word or take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Psalm 119, you get two of these. That I may live and keep your word. But now I keep your word. It's a wholehearted devotion to and a guarding of, a submission to his word. 
So what Christ is saying here is not only you must keep the Old Testament scriptures, you must keep my word. He's elevating his word to the level of Old Testament scripture here. So the promise Jesus is about to give is for true disciples, verse 31. Those who abide in his word or those who keep his word, who persevere in faithful dependence on it. I love this quote by John Calvin as he's commenting on this uh, passage. He says, Therefore, in this passage, Christ promises eternal life to his disciples, but demands his disciples, but, but demands disciples who will not merely nod their assents like donkeys, or profess with the tongue that they approve his teaching, but who will keep it as a precious treasure. Those are the disciples Christ is talking about. This is word. It's important. It's many that pass by and give his word a nod. It's not what defines their lives. Keeping it, guarding it. Progressively, that's an important word. Progressively ordering their thoughts and their lives and their actions and everything around his word. That's what discipleship looks like. And those are the ones that Christ makes the promise to. That brings us to the promise. Those who respond to him this way will never see death, or literally will not see death until the ages, or unto the ages. The Jews quote him down in verse 52. Look what they say. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Jesus says, see death. They say, taste death. The idea is the same. To taste or see death is to experience death. So Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not, what? See the kingdom. That means you won't experience it. You won't enter into it. It says the same thing here. Those who are Christ's disciples will never experience death. Our world has recently been filled with talk about death. You can't turn the news on. Flip through your news articles on your phone. Look on Facebook. Everywhere. Statistics. Death. Death. Everywhere. Fear of death is everywhere. The past year, obviously, COVID has brought a lot of this to the surface Normally, people like to live their lives ignoring the reality of death, going along pretending that it's not going to come or not going to happen for me or don't think about it. But sometimes things like COVID or natural disasters bring it to the forefront of your mind and can't escape it. And the lives are absolutely consumed with self-preservation and fear of death. But even the people who are ignoring it, who are pretending that it's not looming for them, they're still in bondage to it. Why? Right? Why? Because they live their lives with an all-out pursuit to do everything I can to distract myself from it. I don't want to think about it. Pat my life full of any kind of distraction. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 2 with me. nothing new. Mankind has always been in bondage owing to this 
inescapable fear of death. Look at verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14 of Hebrews. Why did Christ become a man? It says he partook of flesh and blood so that through death, through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And through his death might deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That is the condition of our world. Fear of death subject to lifelong slavery. Death is fearful because death means judgment. And that fear is enslaving. You either respond with total despair or you respond with carelessness. Filling my life with superficial distractions. But either way, you're responding by slavery to sin. That's exactly what John 8 has been teaching us, right? Mankind is enslaved to sin as he lives a life which desires sin. And it's slavery because it ends in destruction. So you remember the parachute illustration we, we gave. You can jump out of an airplane without a parachute, and it feels incredibly free. But that person is not in freedom, is he? He's in absolute slavery to the force of gravity, and it will end in his destruction. That's the point. Mankind is enslaved to sin because of it as judgment looming, and so lives their whole life out of fear of death. So look back at John chapter 8, verse 51. Look at Jesus' words. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So what is the death he's speaking of here? Look back at chapter 8, verse 21. I'm going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. It refers to death, which brings people into eternal judgment for sin. That's what he's talking about. He's come so that through his cross and resurrection, all who keep his word would never die in this way. Look over to chapter 11. The story of Lazarus, 11:25. The Jews, we're about to see in our passage in chapter 8, hear Jesus only on the superficial level, and so you're not going to physically die. That's not what he's saying. He clarifies it here in chapter 11. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's astonishing. In other words, when Jesus says you'll never die, he means that even though you may die physically, it will not end in your eternal death and destruction, but life and resurrection. And these promises are all over the place in John. Let me show you one more. John chapter 5, verse 24. 
glorious truths here, brothers and sisters. We need these truths. Chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, very similar to our text, hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, has eternal life now. And he does not come into judgment, but has already passed from death into life. Believers will never die because they will never come into judgment. Judgment is a thing of the past for believers. You've already entered into life. Resurrection life has already begun for you to be experienced more and more on your death, entrance into the Father's presence, and your resurrection, the return of Christ. So what are the implications of this for us? have a couple. Number one, we have a message which our world desperately needs. And yes, they're probably going to respond to you when you tell them in the same way the Jews here respond to Christ. They're not going to like you for it. You tell them that they're the seed of the devil, they're going to die in their sins, they're probably not going to be too happy. But it's loving. You have to tell them. But through the power of the gospel, some will believe we may be tempted to complain about all that's been going on, COVID and the turmoil of our world. But brothers and sisters, this is an environment ordained by the Lord in which these truths of the gospel, what the gospel is meant to accomplish, stand out in crystal clarity. The gospel is not about giving you a comfortable life. It's about saving you from death. That's all that's on people's mind now. We have a message which our world needs. Number two, do we live like people who will never die? Do you live like a person who will never die? Is that how you live? What boldness, what confidence should be ours? Death has already passed behind us. It's done. It was accomplished at the cross. We've already entered into life and look forward to the day we get new bodies. Or am I still living a life that's just myopic and self-centered and just preserving my life? Preserve, preserve, preserve. <clears throat> Safety is all I think about. You need to be reminded of these truths. They're meant for us to live lives which are so distinct the world so free from fear of death that we lay our lives down despite the danger in love for the glory and cause of Christ. You will never die, my friends. How could Jesus make such a claim? It's quite a claim. And the Jews hear it and obviously respond with scorn. Look at our next point. They deny his supremacy. Look what they say. Verse 52. 
Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. First, they hear him very superficially, as though he's just talking about not really dying. And then they compare him with Abraham. They say Abraham and the prophets, they were all people of faith in God's word and people through whom God's word came, and yet they died. And so for Jesus to claim that he possesses some teaching from God, which not only delivers himself, but anybody who hears it, that's to place himself in a position superior to the Old Testament patriarchs, prophets, and the entire Old Testament scriptures. Who do you think you are? They wrongly conclude that the first must be greater. Look at verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham? The, the Greek is literally, it expects the negative answer. You're not greater than our father Abraham, are you? Who died and the prophets who died it's a major theme in John if you've been with us for any time John's emphasized the best doesn't come first the best comes last of all John the Baptist said he who comes after me ranks before me why because he was before me oh yes Christ has come last of all but he's the greatest because in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the Jews don't recognize that. And so they ask him at the end of verse 53, who do you make yourself out to be? By claiming what Jesus just claimed, he must be claiming something great about his person. Only someone greater than Abraham or the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures could claim that. I like what Craig Keener says here on this, uh, this passage. Their suggestion that he makes himself something fits a pattern of accusation throughout the gospel. He makes himself equal with God, 518. God, 1033. God's son, 197. Or king, 1919. The irony is that Jesus has not made himself anything, but sent by the Father, became flesh. This is who Christ is. He's not making himself anything. The Jews are quite wrong. And just as in the previous go around, Jesus is again going to defend his identity. Defend his person. And again, he's going to clarify, not after my glory in saying these things. Look what he says in verse 54 to 55. He said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. And I keep his word. We've already talked about the Father pursuing the Son's glory. He's not making this claim because he's after human praise. He's saying it for their salvation. The Father, the very God of these Jews, is behind Christ, seeking his glory over all things. But how would the Father do that? How's the Father going to glorify his Son? Again, said it over and over again in this gospel. I'll let D.A. Carson say it this time. 
The nature of that glorification, of course, is not in the public display some might have appreciated, but in the ignominy of the cross. In consequent return to the glory the Son enjoyed with the Father before the world began. That's how the Father's pursuing the glory of the Son, and it's about to happen just a few months from this text. The irony is that the very God these Jews claim to know and worship is actively pursuing the glory of the same one the Jews are trying to kill. But someone might respond to Jesus by saying, why, Jesus, are you making any claims at all? Why even run the risk of being looked like a self-promoter or a self-glory seeker? Why say anything? And this is what he answers in verse 55. He said, if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. In other words, he cannot claim anything other than what he is claiming. If he really is this, then to deny it or remain silent makes him a liar, just like these Jews who say that they know God. Rather, it's his commitment to his Father and submission to his Father that Jesus says what he does. And that brings us now to the next point. It's the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So really quickly, there's a lot we could say here. Abraham rejoiced that he should see my day. What is my day? What does that mean? I think it at least means the day of Messiah. The day the promised seed to Abraham would be born. So remember, the Abrahamic covenant, God promises Abraham seeds, a multitude of people like the stars, but he also promises him a seed, singular, who would come, an offspring, who would accomplish the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. I'll show you Genesis 22. I will surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars. And that's the sand. And your offspring, singular, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Paul, Galatians 3, confirms this interpretation. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but to one and to your offspring, who is Jesus is saying here, I am superior to Abraham and have come to provide something Abraham could never provide because I am the promised seed. I am the one Abraham looked forward to and who would accomplish all the promises given to Abraham. So when did he rejoice? It says Abraham rejoiced that he should see my day and he saw it and was glad. Abraham rejoiced at the birth of Isaac. I think the idea is that the first fruits of this promise being fulfilled, I think that's when he saw it. Some Jewish interpretation says that Abraham had um, a vision, which God showed him all of the future and everything that would take place. It's not in the Old Testament. It was Jewish literature um, tradition. So that's possibly what's in the mind of the Jews here, but I think Jesus is pointing us back to these places where Abraham 
Saul, the first burstings on the scene of Christ's day, in the birth of Isaac, and also in the resurrection of Isaac, he didn't die. The Hebrews tells us he was resurrected in a sense. In other words, Abraham saw the day of Messiah as he saw the onset of the promise in the birth of Isaac and the figurative resurrection of Isaac. Jesus says he's able to make the claims he does because he's the promised seed. What Abraham saw only the onset of, he has come to be the final fulfillment. And that brings us to verses 57 through 59. He exclaims his deity. Look at the Jews respond in verse 57. You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? So they're not offended because Jesus ascribed these things to Abraham. They would have expected Abraham to have foreknowledge or knowledge of the future like this. They're offended that Jesus should apply it to himself. My day. Abraham saw my day. And so the Jews misconstrued Jesus' words. Jesus said that Abraham saw his day. And the Jews turn it around and mockingly ask if Jesus has seen Abraham. Have you seen Abraham? So I think what they're doing is they don't want to deal with the theological implications of what Jesus says, so they just misinterpret it over-literally, as though Jesus were claiming to be Abraham's contemporary. It's an easy way to just dismiss him. You're not even an old man. You're not 50. You're not even aged. You're 30-something. Abraham's been dead 2,000 years. How could you have seen Abraham? It's mocking and rather than correcting their misunderstanding, Jesus affirms his existence not only prior to Abraham, but superior. Look at verse 56. This is that, sorry, verse 58, that next large mouth. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He makes an unmistakable claim. Before, back in verse 24, he said it. He said, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. He was implying the same thing. They didn't get it, but now they get it. It's unmistakable. He's come after Abraham, and yet he ranks superior to Abraham. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Self-existing, perpetually Existing. This is the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D in your English Bibles. It implies his self-existence. He exists from himself, defined by himself. It is the covenant name of the Lord. Exodus 3, I am who I am. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is my name forever. Jesus says that I'm not only Abraham's seed, I am Abraham's covenant. God. I am. Jesus is Yahweh, and faith in him as this is essential. So the text here from Isaiah 48, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I call Egoi me. Egoi me. I am. I am the first the last. 
What's really interesting is the verse right before this is the verse we saw, my glory I will give to none other. He is the son, the unique son, and also very God of very God. And as that, he has the authority and the supremacy to declare what verse 51 declares, you'll never die. If there's any doubt as to Jesus' meaning, People say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, look at verse 59. The Jews knew what he said. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Stoning was the prescribed execution for blasphemy. They got it. They knew what he said. Happens again over in chapter 10. You can read it yourself. Chapter 10, verse 30 to 33 clearly declares himself as God. What's interesting is how it ends. They pick up stones and throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I think there's an illusion there. I am was driven out of the temple in the Old Testament, right? The cloud lifts, departs from the temple. He had come, they reject him. I am has come back to his temple. They are driving him out of it again. And yet that is in God's sovereign plan. For it will be as they drive him out and crucify him that not only will he be glorified, but he will resurrect a new temple for humanity, his flesh, through whom we might know and have access to God forever. And him never die. So I have a few implications jotted down to summary of what we've seen this morning. First, I want to ask you um, any questions, comments, or implications that, that you see from this passage. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Chris, you go first. What is I am specifically? Like, what is it talking about, like Exodus 3 and everything? So, what is that mean exactly? Yeah. So there's uh, several things you could say there. First, I think it's pointing back to what systematicians would call his aseity, his self-existence. He depends on nothing for his life, and he depends on nothing to define himself. He's self-defined. Um, he's not changed. He's going to be what he will be. So in Exodus, it's, it's the imperfect. It says, I will be who I will be. My promises are just as sure as my character. So I think that's uh, that's at least what he's what he's saying. Yes. His, his nature, his character, and also applied how he will act in the covenant. Okay. Then I, I just struck again and again. It, it's they, they understand what he's saying. Hmm. They just don't believe it. Yeah. In other words, it's really clear that he's making this claim to deity. <laughs> so they just don't buy it. And yeah. So it's. And he, he's actually worthy of the penalty for being a blasphemer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, that, not, that. it's not it's not like the messianic secret yeah. anymore. Oh, it's no. no longer like just who are you? Yep. Clear. He's, he said who he is clearly. Yep. And we we and learned last week why that's the case, right? Yeah. Yeah. Their spiritual DNA. Look back what he what he said really quickly. Um, just go with that. He asks them why. Are you not able to understand? Remember that? Verse 43. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? Why don't you get it? It's because you're not able. You have spiritual DNA of the, the devil. And then when they do hear him, 
they don't spiritually apprehend it. They don't want it to be true. So they reject it. That's why you must be born again. God has to do a decisive work in your heart. And you won't believe. And yet he's done that for you, my friends. And he will do it through the gospel as you proclaim it clearly, boldly. Maybe not in your time. But man, when he's ready. <laughs> you're born again. The wind blows in his life. Questions, comments, thoughts? Yes? You had mentioned just the, uh, the fun and, and uh, the study we could do on the Trinitarian perspective mm. in here. Just, just two books offered to the group. Okay. Uh, Michael Reed, The Lighting in the Trinity, yes. and uh, Devoted to God from Sinclair Ferguson. Okay. Really good reads here. Excellent. Yes. Especially with what we were talking about here. Yep. The Lighting in the Trinity, I've read it. It's excellent. Highly recommend it. I've not read the Sinclair Ferguson, but I love Devoted Sinclair, so I would. So, yeah, thank you. It's great. All right, guys, I've kept you over. Know the identity of Christ. It's essential. Rest in Christ with all your weight. The promise will cease for you the moment he ceases to be God. That's never going to happen. If you keep his word, you will never die. Live like it. Boldness, go forth. Share the gospel. Sacrifice your life for the sake of Christ. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Bless it. Teach us in the service to come. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, the encouragement they are to me. Use us, Lord. Cause us to bear fruit. In Jesus' name. Amen.